Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in APAC and California. We're very much looking forward to today's discussion, which is going to be focused on the challenges of the grid through the energy transition. Today's guest is Jack Curtis from NERA. NERA is a physics-enabled platform that builds 3D interactive models of networks and assets, providing the ability to run real-world scenarios, assess current and future risks, and prioritize maintenance and disaster response. Jack's currently Chief Commercial Officer at NERA and was also head of APAC for First Solar. Before these roles, he was both an investment banker and a lawyer. Welcome, Jack. Hi, Hugo. Thanks for having me. We're also joined today by James Ha, Aurora's Head of Research in APAC, who's going to be chatting with Jack and me today. Welcome, James. Hi, Hugo. Good to be back. Terrific. Jack, before we get into the details of NERA and the grid, if we could talk a little bit about your time at First Solar, which I think was fascinating. You guys were kind of early movers in the solar space in Australia, and First Solar had a lot of success in developing solar assets in those early days. What do you think you and the team got right? Like, what did you see coming that potentially others didn't? Yeah, I think one of the things we really focused on was ensuring that we understood every component of the commercial, economic, and project value chain. And what I mean by that is that other people developing projects were focused on where there were good sites, where they could get a cheap solar panel. Some had construction experience. And I think what we realized early on was that solar had reached a point where you really needed to be optimizing across every single component. And you might have a great CapEx profile and a good solar panel price. But if you didn't understand network constraints appropriately, if you didn't understand forward power curves appropriately, any one of those inputs could blow up a project. And so I think we brought together a team of people that I certainly didn't have better direct expertise than, but a team of people that understood everything that went into developing and delivering a viable solar project, not just the project itself, but also all the implications around network connectivity. Yeah. I mean, I remember chatting you with you guys when Aurora first came to Australia and, and you were, I think, quite rightly arguing as people wanted to kind of water down MLFs and thermal grid curtailment and, and various forms of risk to project to projects. You know, you guys were, I think, correctly arguing that a lot of this was foreseeable. People had got bad advice, particularly around the grid, but that that was where the risks sat in a privatised system. It was a little bit you know, crying over spilt milk, I suppose, re- retrospectively there. Well, I think that's right. I think, as you'll recall, that was one of the reasons why we thought there was such a uh, great role for Aurora to play at the time. 
And I think the problem a little bit was that it was during a period where renewables and particularly solar had really started to, to take off as a viable alternative source of generation. And so there mm. was a bit of a rush mentality and people had set up funds, deployed capital into the market, you know, obviously with the specific goal of doing something with that money. And so I think people were solving for what they wanted to be the case in an economic pro forma, um, yeah. as opposed to what was actually the case. And, you know, to your point, uh, forming a view based on what really was quite foreseeable with the right level of due diligence and not trying to solve for an outcome that probably wasn't going to materialize. And then, so I think obviously you subsequently saw a lot of projects that were quite quickly underwater because they either didn't understand some fairly critical inputs or weren't willing to look past uh, very objective data that would suggest that was what was going to happen. Mm. And First Solar was pulled back from development in Australia. But, I mean, do you think it's harder now than it was in the sense that, you know, one, some of these grid issues have become much more painful, but two, the whole policy landscape has got more complicated as as well. You've got more, I think, and diverse direct interventions in the markets and a whole variety of ways which can often cloud investment cases. Has it got harder or was it is it always difficult? And you know, this is this is just where we're at at the moment. I think on a relative basis it has become harder. And so obviously the cost of renewables has come down a lot. So the baseline cost makes it more uh, attractive. I think the policy uh, tailwinds have become a lot better. So even though mm. they have become more complex, there's now a whole range of programs that need to be navigated. There are new funding mechanisms and revenue mechanisms that arguably are more complex. I think what you do struggle with now is that a lot of the core economic inputs have gone in the wrong direction. So, for example, uh, procurement is trickier. Um, Inflation is obviously a big driver. The cost of capital has gone up as a function of rising interest rates. And so the period in which we participated, we benefited from a lot of those things breaking the right way. Uh, Interest rates, which probably couldn't be predicted to come down to the velocity they did, was a was a kind of organic tailwind, and then the industry really coalesced around driving core costs down. And so I think on a net basis now, even though you can definitely say that the demand for renewables is higher than it's ever been, the complexity of putting together a viable project that can meet the price expectations, mm. and again, a world that is probably more competitive than what it was when we participated, because now there's a ton of institutional capital funding renewable projects and a lot of large players who know what they're doing. Uh, I think on a relative basis, it is actually harder to get a project up, even though the absolute demand for renewables has significantly gone in the right direction. And maybe one more question before we kind of dive into the grid. You know, as I see the Australian kind of Thought leadership energy landscape, there tends to be kind of two broad camps. One which says, look, to get to a 1.5 degree trajectory in Australia's electricity system, we need to rapidly increase uh, you know, the rate of rollout of renewables and zero carbon firming and transmission. And we'd need lots and lots of government interventions to make that happen, whether it's CFDs or capacity markets, more green certificates you know, bypassing various uh, tests to deliver transmission. You know, that's kind of one camp. And that's a little bit the way that the states are going here in Australia. The second is, you know, we should trust the wholesale market that we designed more. 
And there's definitely things we need to tweak. We need to get better at coordinating and, and delivering additional transmission. And maybe we need some more balancing and salary markets to keep the lights on. But let's keep government out of direct investment and let the private sector crack on. I know that's a simplification, but where do you sit on that spectrum, do you think? And and I suppose what direction do you see things going over the next 10 years? I think it's really a combination of the two at the risk of giving an opt-out answer. And I think it's the case for a number of reasons. The first one being that when you're trying to achieve the kind of policy targets that are in place, whether it's a 1.5 degree reduction or an absolute reduction in emissions or a certain amount of renewable capacity that you're looking to bring into the system, all of which are in the same ecosystem of outcomes, you really cannot rely solely on the private sector to drive it at the velocity that's required. And so Mm. I think government intervention plays an important role, but I think to the second part of your question, it needs to do it in a way that isn't crowding out the private sector's role in it. And so where we've seen effective policy in the past is where the government fills a role or drives a level of appetite in the market, but does it in a way where it's bridging the last, call it 20% of the gap. So it's not taking whatever the policy ambition is from zero to 100. It's playing a role where it's giving the market signal to whether it be large institutional equity those that fund the debt for projects, those that construct the projects, those that realize the projects in any other capacity, that this is a goal that is going to be taken seriously. There is a reason to invest capital and resources into making that goal achievable. But if the mechanisms are structured in a way whereby there's no role for the private sector to play as part of that journey, Mm. you ultimately end up driving a bit of a white elephant outcome. And we saw that um, at First Solar in a number of markets where There was this boom of renewable activity, but then a bust that followed it because the mechanisms were either so lucrative or so uh, government incentive bent that the private sector's ability to take the baton post-government incentive or play an active role during the incentive program was actually very low. And so you thought you were doing a good thing, but ultimately it was creating a false economy and a false outcome as it relates to driving a sustainable outcome. And so if you look now at government intervention, I think the first thing that is very positive, particularly in Australia, is that almost every state and the federal government has a very aggressive goal. Now, there's complexity in that each of them have different ways of getting there and different structures. So that requires some fairly uh, strong interpretation by the private sector. But ultimately, I think once most of them get cracking on, the private sector's ability to take that baton, to execute on it and ideally achieve these goals is going to be a bit, pretty big role. And absent that government intervention, I think we'd be, still be stuck where we were 10 years ago in isolated programs coming and going. Jack, just to jump in there, uh, when you were with First Solar and you know, you're looking at the Australian market 10 years ago, that was kind of at the point where the LGC scheme and the renewable energy target, um, there was quite a bit of uncertainty about the future of that scheme You know, around the, the turn of the election, 2013, 2014. Um, do you think that that has played out and that that is a an example of a situation where governments provided too much incentive and there was a boom and a bust? Or do you think that is actually an example of uh, governments providing the right policy settings for private sector investors to come in and take on the baton? I, I think there's two lenses to it, James. I think the first lens is that it wasn't a poorly structured program per se. What 
really constrained it and its ability to drive an evolution in the market's growth was the uncertainty that surrounded it. And so during the RET's lifetime, uh, there were multiple government views on whether it would stay, whether it would go. And I think that's really what challenged it. Now, it did definitely achieve a goal in that it drove the first adoption of large-scale renewables. And I think without that, you wouldn't have a baseline. There were subsequent programs like Arena's large-scale solar um, program that drove solar investment to another level that brought the cost down. And that's ultimately what all these programs are about, which is can you drive enough scale within a program that drives cost to a point where it becomes a more economically viable alternative? And so I think when you look, James, at some of the incentive mechanisms now, such as the Alteza mechanism in AMO Services Limited program, what I like about them is that it's helping the market price risk and removing risk from the equation and providing that certainty of investment. Because what happens, and this is the greatest false economy in most renewable policies, is that risk is often mispriced and you can get a much larger return on your investment if you help the private sector price that risk accordingly and mm. remove it as a variable from a portfolio, from a project, or from a long-term outlook on a market. And uncertainty is one of the, one of the worst risk premiums to introduce into any policy, any market, any project. And the private sector will always, you know, I think quite rightly, misprice that risk. And so then you are creating this economic burden on the industry that really shouldn't exist and the government can play a strong role in removing. And so long-winded way of saying, I think what challenged a lot of these programs wasn't the program design per se. It was the fact that they had a level of sovereign risk attached to it, market risk attached to it, and the private sector just doesn't post up when it can't price uncertainty accurately. Mm, super interesting. I'm keen for us to talk a little bit more about Nira and Hugo gave a description of the company at the start, but could you explain to our audience what the product is, what the problems are that it solves, and maybe a little bit about the work that you've done in New South Wales to help companies there unlock more grid capacity? Sure. So at a high level, uh, Nira is a software platform. What we do is we take a lot of digital data and asset data and we create very sophisticated digital models of electricity networks. Now, what I mean by sophisticated is that it's not just a 3D visualization of an asset. You can simulate almost anything within the digital model that will be a highly representation or a high representation of what's going to happen on the physical asset. And so you may be familiar with this nomenclature of a digital twin, which, which we have moved away from because it's being somewhat bastardized in its application. But what we provide is a true engineering grade replica of the physical asset. Now, once you have that digital model that gives the owners and operators of electricity networks a high degree of confidence around if they simulate, analyze something in one of our models, they will then go and execute on whatever they're analyzing in the model and the physical asset. You can actually unlock a lot of efficiency and a lot of potential for what can be uh, realized on the physical electricity network. And so within that broader context, we operate across four key themes. The first one being designing and constructing new electricity infrastructure. The second one being optimizing the asset management cycle of existing assets. The third one being in the context of climate and extreme weather. So how to defend against uh, extreme weather, how to make networks more resilient. 
And then the fourth theme is really focused on energy transition enablement. And so one of the things that we believe is becoming uh, increasingly more resonant with anyone who's participating in energy transition land is that we're now at a point where, as we are just talking about, the absolute demand for renewable energy and generation that can solve for uh, emission reductions and temperature reductions is probably the best it's ever been. And then what you also see is that policy landscape supported by very, what I believe to be genuine commitments to retire the coal fleet and the fossil generation fleet. And so you've never seen a stronger demand signal. And as we're talking about, as it relates to where the cost of renewables uh, has gotten to, despite you know some of the broader challenges around realizing projects, I think for the first time ever, you have this de- demand supply balance between wanting to bring renewables into the system and the ability for generation to play a role. Now, the role that we play at NERA and where we see the biggest constraint to energy transition right now is that the network still is essentially the conduit, literally and figuratively, between generation and that demand. And right mm-hmm. now, that work is still massively constrained relative to the ambitions around bringing online the amount of renewable generation and firming and storage capacity to realize these lofty uh, energy transition goals. And so what we do at NERA is that we focus on removing the network as a constraint. We focus on helping new network infrastructure, so transmission lines for renewable energy zones to be realized more efficiently. And we also focus a lot on optimizing the existing network. And so one of the pieces of work that we think is particularly exciting that you alluded to, James, was a piece of work we did in partnership with Essential Energy, whereby they used our software to identify where all the thermal constraints were in their network and realized that, which they'd always known to an extent that they'd made conservative assumptions about how much current they could run down the lines relative to conductor sag limitations. So the safety issues that manifest if you run the lines too hot and were essentially able to re-rate the thermal line rating across 1.8 million uh, conductors or lines to the extent where now in a lot of areas of their network, they think they can up to double that capacity. And so I think this is one of the most misunderstood, almost dirty secrets in uh, electricity network land and not a, not a secret that's been kind of kept deliberately, but one that until the advent of technology and data hasn't enabled networks to prosecute it accurately, which is there's a lot more that can be done with the existing network. Uh, in order to accelerate more renewables into the system. We still need to build a very meaningful amount of new infrastructure. But as we all know, building new infrastructure is not without its practical challenges. And so our role is to remove the network as a constraint to bringing on as much generation as possible, as quickly as possible, to meet the demand that's manifesting with fossil generation getting retired on schedule and the policy appetite to achieve zero emission goals and 1.5 degree reduction goals. Awesome. I mean, removing the grid as a constraint is a very ambitious but worthwhile goal. We hear all the time that transmission and you know connecting into the grid and, and managing the networks is one of the key barriers to transitioning at the speed required to achieve some of those temperature goals. Just to make it very concrete, Jack, you know, you talked about the fact that your models uh, effectively simulate what's going on in the network. So for that New South Wales example, were you effectively modeling maybe at you know five-minute granularity or, or even on a second-to-second granularity 
uh, power flows in a day, maybe on a peak demand day to try and understand where the most vulnerable parts of the network are, where the parts are, where thermal limits were in reach of, were at risk of being breached. Is that kind of the sort of modeling that you guys are undertaking here? Yeah, great question, James. And I think it is worth drawing that distinction. So the work that we've done initially has focused on a static line rating reset. So really just focusing on the mechanical, behavioral, structural, thermal limits of the lines. The next evolution of that work will move into what you just described around dynamic line rating, where you are taking in uh, five-minute interval data around ambient temperature, wind speed, wind direction, current, power flow, and being able to enable the networks to optimize the operation of those lines and their capacity availability on something close to a real-time basis. And so what, what, what shouldn't be underestimated is just the amount of uplift that can be achieved in a one-time reset or static line rating reset. And then the next evolution is to be able to optimize it you know, on close to a real-time basis. Awesome. And how do you guys go about validating your models and getting you know, network service providers comfortable with relying on the representations that you guys create? Yeah, so two things. First of all, it's been a uh, relatively long journey of adoption. And as you might imagine, um, electricity networks, including those that obviously are regulated, are held and should be held to a very high standard of compliance around engineering standards, reliability, regulatory compliance, safety. And so our models have gone through a very exhaustive validation process by the networks themselves. We like to say that we're not a recommendation engine. So we're not telling the networks what to do with their networks. They understand their networks much better than we do. What our platform does is enable them to define parameters around what they think should be done with the network in various contexts, and then leverage our software and our platform to execute on that analysis. And so the validation itself ultimately resides with the networks, but Obviously, they would not have deployed what's coming out of our platform from an analytics point of view if they hadn't done some very exhaustive validation uh, and stress testing relative to existing software platforms, relative to standards, relative to a lot of manual uh, in-the-field validation as well. Uh, but we are very, very at pains to point out that we never want to be a black box where someone provides us data and then we output a recommendation. I think the other thing that underpins the strength of what we do is that the models are essentially built fit for purpose to the standards of the network. So we take all their construction libraries, we take all their standards around engineering design, and we ensure that all of those are incorporated within the model that is built. So as soon as you start extracting insights from the model, you already have a high degree of confidence that it is incorporating everything that uh, is typically incorporated in the physical model itself. Maybe could we turn to one of the four key themes that you mentioned, which was around extreme weather. So we talk a lot about liability on this podcast, but usually it's in terms of making sure that there's enough megawatt hours of generation available and less about reliability from the perspective of risks to physical infrastructure. So you guys have done some really interesting work looking at network resilience and helping network operators cope with extreme weather events like fire and floods. And I'm wondering, do you think that these risks are either over or under or appropriately estimated 
by policymakers at the moment, particularly in the context of a warming climate? I think you framed the question well in the context of there's obviously very strong awareness that extreme weather, that climate is playing a more active role in its impact on physical infrastructure. I think what is being underestimated is the impact it's having on the reliability of critical infrastructure and the critical commodities that come from them, uh, primarily electricity networks, despite the subjectivity of that assessment. Because more and more what we're seeing is, and we think about this in the context of energy transition enablement as well, which is the first thing you should try to do or ensure you're doing is making sure that critical infrastructure is online to its fullest available capacity all the time. Now, obviously, that's very difficult in the advent of increasing extreme weather events. But what we do is essentially look at extreme weather across three lenses. The first one is a preemptive lens. So we can help networks simulate what's going to happen if a hurricane, a flood, a bushfire comes through, and then enable them to identify where there are the most weakness-prone parts of that network that can be made more preemptively resilient without having to gold plate the entire network time and time again. And mm. so what that means is that when these events inevitably occur and unfortunately continue to occur on a greater frequency, the network's ability to withstand that impact is greater. So the likelihood of downtime is lower. The second lens is that when these events are occurring, we actually enable networks to respond to them far more efficiently and safely. So for example, we recently did a piece of work for South Australia Power Networks where within four days, we had a flood modeling simulation up and running. And what that enabled was for them to not send anyone out into the field to identify which lines were at risk. And so they were able to digitally simulate what they should shut down from a power point of view. But equally importantly, they were able to restore power in five days, whereas they were expecting to take for it to take three weeks. Hmm. And so one of the benefits of having a digital model at this level of sophistication is that you can completely change the game around how the response to extreme weather is managed, both from a safety point of view, so you don't have people running around near electricity lines near water, but equally importantly for the communities and consumers that rely on electricity supply, you can restore it much faster when you can simulate what can happen and what should happen in a digital model. And then the third lens, uh, which we refer to as build back better, is you can't neutralize, obviously, any impact to a network, no matter how much preemptive simulation you do. And so once networks have suffered some degree of damage, what we can help them do is have preset designs on how that network can be reconstructed, reconstructed post the event. And then we can help them accelerate that design validation so the network can be restored faster back to usually a better state and a state that's more resilient. And so I think the role we play is really across that entire life cycle of extreme events in a weather context. But I think to your question, it's kind of underappreciated right now that this element of having critical infrastructure and its availability increasingly impacted by climate change is going to become a bigger problem and one that isn't seen as a key pillar of energy transition enablement as we bring on new generation sources and rely on the network to integrate them is going to be be pretty critical. Yeah, for sure. The times that we tend to talk most about extreme weather events like that 
at Aurora is often thinking about, you know, upsides for battery business cases, for example. Like we normally think about these things, you know, power lines getting blown over or bushfires as creating quite lucrative market opportunities for actors that can thrive off that volatility. But underneath that, of course, is this actual risk to delivery of electricity to consumers um, and, you know, building back uh, the network to make it more resilient to that in future. Uh, obviously makes a lot of sense, particularly if we're going to try and maintain the same standards of reliability as Australians are used to. Um, but I think, you know, to, if we could just zoom out a little bit now. So Australia, you know, like many places around the world, is struggling with building new transmission, both part, both from a social license perspective. Um, so, you know, we've seen that in places like Victoria, where there's concerns about conflicting land use, particularly with, you know, these big uh, infrastructure projects running over prime agricultural land. Um, but also from the social license perspective of um, it's quite hard to make a compelling case that some of these projects will reduce costs for consumers because, you know, people can see the first order effect of you know, higher network charges on their bills. And it's less obvious to see the second order effect, which is, you know, you unlock all of this renewable capacity and it brings down wholesale prices. Um, so clearly the first best solution here is to use the existing assets more efficiently, which is very much what you guys are assisting with. But how can we make a better case for new transmission, both in Australia and in other markets around the world? So I think there's there's two parts to it. I think the first part is that, yes, you should optimize the existing network and make the most of it. But even when you have fully optimized the existing network, we are still going to need to build new infrastructure. And so I think the challenge, as you rightly point out, is mapping to consumers in the short term, the upfront network cost of building new infrastructure relative to the long-term cost reduction in wholesale prices as a function of bringing more renewals into the system. And so there's that absolute kind of cost equation. And obviously the narrative around does renewables and energy transition solve for lower consumer costs over what time frame is a, is a, is a very, very well-debated discussion. Uh, and so I think part of it is uh, a transparency narrative, which is, yes, this upfront cost is going to be non-trivial, but this is what it's going to introduce to the system. And over an X year horizon, you will see a net reduction in what you pay for energy. So even though there's a lot of, uh, I guess, literature and debate around renewables bringing down the cost of energy, I don't think the way that it's framed to consumers is particularly digestible. Mm. I think the second part is some of the other things that challenge new infrastructure uh, in the context of transmission around social license, where again, I think part of the challenge is the transparency of the conversation. So one of the things that NIR is used for is to provide um, landowners with a much better view, literally and figuratively, of what is going to happen if a transmission line goes ahead. And what we've found is that being able to introduce that transparency, which is to actually sit down with a landowner in the house and show them a literal view of what it's going to look like from their house, a lot of the benefit is not knowing what they don't know. And then when you get into conversations around, well, why don't you just put it underground, despite you know the obvious cost implications of that, we can show them that putting a transmission line underground is not a neat surgical procedure. It ends up in a scorched earth, uh, approach from a vegetation point of view, from a landscape point of view. And so the visual impact might not actually be better than what you thought before you kind of get into the cost implications of putting transmission underground. And mm -hmm. so I think 
the main point around transmission per se is improving the transparency and the upfront engagement with communities um, and with consumers and helping them understand the entire life cycle of that journey not just from a visual point of view or a land impact point of view, but also from a cost point of view. And so you know, even as someone who spent a long time in energy, I don't think that the narrative around how renewables brings the cost down to consumers is particularly digestible. And so I have a lot of empathy for you know the everyday consumer who doesn't spend all day in energy land trying to uh, make sense of both the network component, the long-term generation component, the social license component, and I think all of it gets better with better upfront engagement and transparency, you know, across all of those lenses. Jack, super interesting. And I imagine these conversations are particularly salient in California at the moment where PG&E, due to some of the wildfires it caused, has promised to build big chunks of its transmission underground. Um, maybe a few kind of more rapid fire questions just in the interest of time. I know NIRA is expanding really quickly into the US and Europe. Are you seeing any kind of transmission owner operators doing anything particularly innovative? You know, storages, transmission solutions, new software solutions, whatever it might be. Do do you see some as kind of much further ahead? I I think there's gradations of that answer. I think Mm. still what we do see is too much of a blunt force approach which is leveraging the execution methodologies of the past. And then when you look at options like putting transmission underground, you know, it is blunt force in a lot of ways. It's obviously the most expensive way, but then you're also obviously avoiding much broader issues around vegetation ignition and wildfires that is very difficult to put um, a, a, a price that doesn't make sense on. And so I think where we are seeing innovation And this is particularly in the US where the process of building a transmission line is particularly arcane, not just around the general challenges of building critical infrastructure projects of that scale, but navigating a lot of the approval regulatory constraints attached to it. Uh, And there was actually a particularly good article in the New York Times this, this week about that, which is the entire process around how the information and approvals of how major projects like transmission are realized needs to be disrupted. And I actually think that that's where the greatest opportunity is. Mm. Building large projects can only be optimized within a certain envelope, but if you can improve all the information dissemination, approvals, the process through which projects are approved and realized and engaged with the community, that's where the biggest bang for buck exists. And that's really the role that we look to play, which is, You have literally dozens of different stakeholders looking at different information in different vacuums. None of it's integrated. None of it's objectively verifiable. If you can have a platform that can bring all that information together in one place across all stakeholder lenses, then the efficiency through which design approval can be accelerated, through which decisions around routes can be made, through community engagement and positive social license, I think that's where the largest innovation gains can be realized. There's only so much efficiency you can bring to putting, you know, large steel towers and conductors in the ground. But really what's constraining the rollout of new infrastructure and creating most of the blowback and most of the constraints is the information dissemination and the process through which these projects are approved and designed and finalized. And so I think, you know, you're going to see these spectrums where you're going to have blunt force approaches to it, which have a role. But I think the more that information and data can be brought together in one 
uh, I guess, unified system of enablement that enables all relevant stakeholders to be making the right objective decisions off the right data set is really where the big wins are going to exist. And then what you might also find is that some of the secondary risks around vegetation management, wildfire ignition, and not to call them secondary in an order of importance, but as it relates to some of the other drivers around some of these blunt force approaches can also be solved that way. So if you can solve the risk around vegetation ignition much better, then you can also make different decisions about whether you underground an entire transmission network as opposed to de-risk a meaningful percent of your overhead network. And so I think all of these technology advancements around simulating and analyzing the risks to having transmission above ground and then the challenges to actually building and designing and constructing new transmission, all of the big gains sit in technology and data. I don't think there's going to be massive gains in how you construct a project. There are some interesting technologies that string conductors with drones, for example. Mm. But I think if you look at all the blowback and constraints around new transmission, most of it sits in the realization of the actual concept, not in the actual execution of it itself. Super interesting. And let me just say a couple of, again, slightly more rapid fire questions to finish up on. Um, and I, you know, try and answer, I try and ask these across pods. What's one out of consensus view that you have on the energy transition, an area that you think you're at odds with conventional wisdom? And, and knowing you, I suspect you could pick several here, but <laughs> <laughs> what, what's one maybe that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think that I think the main one, which isn't so much at odds, but I just don't think it's fully appreciated, is that it really, and this is somewhat subjective, but I still think objectively accurate, is that the network is the biggest constraint to the energy transition yeah, right yeah. now. And then, and then if you look at the broader, you know, potential for global decarbonization, you know, we all know electrification is number one or two cab off the rank. But I think what's also not well understood is the downstream implications of electrification once you start bringing more electric vehicles into the mix. And not just because people want to buy an electric vehicle, but if you can actually harness vehicle to grid in a constructive way, if you can harness rooftop PV in a more constructive way, there's a much bigger role that electrification can play in global decarbonization, even against the backdrop of, you know, how people typically understand it, which is getting fossil generation out of the mix. And then just to finish up, who do you read or listen to in the energy space that you think is always good, thought-provoking and kind of relevant to your work in the private sector? Well, my my favorite podcast is obviously uh, Energy Unplugged. Here, so <laughs> that, that 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 that's a Dorothy Dixer. I mean, I, I think the one I, I particularly enjoy is also the Energy Insiders podcast, L- yeah. largely because I think yeah. Giles and David are sufficiently cranky and old now, and I'm happy for them to hear me say this. Where they just they're just not in the market for BS anymore. they've just seen so much come and go they've lived through enough cycles they understand it you know very well at a technical level that i just like the fact they won't suffer fools (laughs) and they'll ask tough questions and they won't let you know hand wavy guidance go through and i think just they've seen a lot and i think that's one of one of the challenges a little bit for the current paradigm is you know there are a lot of people that have entered the energy transition space recently and then those that have you know, been around a bit longer and have a bit of scar tissue, I, I think they're they're pretty well positioned to play a role. So I think those that bring that lens is uh, I always find I always find good value. No, I totally agree. I mean, th- those guys are excellent. When I first entered the Australian market, I think I listened to something like a hundred back episodes to get across what was 
happening. And I, I think, as you say, there's a bit of cynicism there as well, which is often really helpful. I do think generally the quality of Australian energy journalism is quite good. And the you know, organisations like Renew Economy do a good job on shining the light on quite a lot of detail. Like often it's much harder to get up to speed with the market where there's just not quite such good journalism around it. So I think Australia actually is well served, arguably sometimes too well served because everyone has an opinion on everything. But I think overall it's probably a good thing. Well, I think that's right, man. And I also think it's reflective of the fact that Australia does punch above its weight relative to the role it can play in exporting mm. expertise. So, you know, it's an obvious point that Australia has a much bigger role to play in renewable adoption. But what we find is that Australia is actually ahead of the curve in technology adoption um, in most markets and in most constructs. And so I think, you know, as much as we talk about as a country being an export nation around technology innovation, I generally believe that narrative has a lot more um, room to grow. We just need to make sure that we execute on our own mandates and then we can focus on the expertise coming out of that uh, and what we can do with that outside Australia. Totally agree. And a great note to finish on. Um, Jack, thanks so much for your time today. We've covered an enormous amount there, I think, in 40 or 45 minutes. We're hugely appreciative. All the best and thank you again. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation. And James, thank you for hosting with me. No worries. That was Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in APAC in California, and James Ha, Aurora's Head of Research in APAC, talking to Jack Curtis, Chief Commercial Officer at NERA. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.